0: You know, the markets we're buying in are robust markets. The population is stable and growing, Mm -hmm. and the values are stable and growing. It's not like we're just buying residential anywhere. Mm -hmm. We're buying in good markets. Welcome to episode number 1208-1208. Thank you so much for joining me today as we talk about the economy and what you as a prudent investor should do. I'll tell you, you know, you've heard that we are in a mess and we're in a mess in a lot of ways. As I say this, I still think it's an amazing time to be alive. It just depends how you look at it and what you do about it, right? Because everything in life is what you make it, It's not what is that counts, but how you take it. And so you can take action that can really make these messy problems of government, of the economy, of uh, politicians that buy votes and spend too much, you can make them work for you, especially with the most historically proven asset class in the entire world, income property. And I've got Doug here with me today to talk about some of these things before we get to our guest, which will be part one of a returning guest economist, professor, and software entrepreneur, Lawrence Kutlikoff
1: Doug, how's it going? Going pretty well. Uh, you know, I was just thinking when you were uh, doing the intro there, it would be funny if someday you said, instead of, you know, as a prudent investor, how you can make your life better, say, as a complete imbecile, here is how you can completely and totally ruin the rest <laughs> of your life for all time.
0: Yes. Well, this could be called the dummy's guide to investing, right? Now, it's funny when you look at that series of the dummy's guides, the, those books, obviously I'm talking about with the yellow cover, and then the the copycat series, I guess it's the copycat I don't know maybe the other one copied this one but the complete idiots guide why does anybody buy that do they really think they're dumb or (laughs) I don't know it's it's funny it's funny
1: one of these days we should do a spoof show where instead of giving people uh good prudent advice to help themselves we should give them advice to completely ruin their lives yeah.
0: Well, yeah. It, we, you know what? Maybe we should do that on April Fool's Day. Maybe <laughs> the next April Fool's Day. Watch out, folks. You know, I, I do, I have been known to do some April Fool's episodes. So, so there you go. Okay. So Doug, let's talk about the American retirement savings problem. And it is. Pretty significant. Now, you've all heard these things and seen these articles about how, you know, the average American, if they had a $400 emergency expense, they couldn't meet it. You know, like 40% of the population or something like that. That's tragic. It's sad when you hear that stuff. But let's talk more about the mainstream and look at how much by decade people are saving for retirement. And Lawrence Kutlikoff is going to talk in more on part two of this interview that you're about to hear part one of today about how you can even out these expenses. And Doug, one of the things that occurred to me during this interview with Lawrence, uh, he's been on several times, but one of the things that's kind of odd is that what some people listening May not realize is that you know most financial planning is about let's be more prudent, let's save for a rainy day, et cetera et cetera, but some people might realize that they're actually not living it up enough, and that's kind of an interesting twist, but for most people not not our listeners but most people in America, the opposite problem is true, isn't it? <laughs>
1: Almost certainly. Yeah, almost certainly one of the things to think about also is that when you're talking about retirement planning Taxes get really important when you get into retirement also Oh, yeah, because one situation that I've actually seen to some people who are very close to me in my life is Where they were very successful in their life they accumulated quite a bit of retirement assets and they were almost all in a traditional IRA where they were subject to required minimum distributions. Well, so now that presents a couple of problems. Number one... This is known as the RMD
0: problem. RMD. Yeah, Yeah. required minimum. So they got to take at 59 and a half, you can start taking distributions. At 70, you're required to take distributions. I believe those are the ages, right?
1: Correct. In their case, they have been very successful. And by the time you put their RMDs, plus their Social Security, plus a couple of pensions that they have accumulated, they're already over 150000 in AGI. So, uh, Adjusted for example, gross income. Correct. Thank you. So now what happens is now they can't get a depreciation offset from something like rental property, which they recently purchased, without being a real estate professional, which they have no interest in doing. So now they have yeah. this suspended depreciation that they can't get a benefit from. And so that's one of the things is that, you we see articles all the time about, you know, save enough for retirement, you know, make sure you save for a rainy day, but also make sure you save it in the right way, because otherwise, if you're really successful, you could paint yourself into a corner for taxes.
0: Yeah, okay, so let me make a comment on this before you go too far. This is one of my many qualms about the absolute scam known as the financial services industry, okay? It has sold this really silly idea ever since retirement accounts came along, okay? And when these plans came along, you saw all the financial advisors out there with their charts and their graphs, and you'd see these over and over, you know, throw money into your IRA, right? Or your 401k, because the myth that has been sold to people is like this tragic myth. Oh, When you take the distributions out, you'll be earning less money, so you'll be in a lower tax bracket. Well, here's two giant flaws with that. And Doug, I can't wait to hear what you're going to have to say about this, because I don't think we've talked about it before. The one flaw is that the government will actually keep tax rates the same. Folks, you're going to hear in this interview with Lawrence Kutlikoff, that the government is broke, okay, and has a $239 trillion obligation coming at it in terms of unfunded entitlements. So the tax rates are not likely to be lower in the future, okay? That's the first thing. But the second thing is, it's telling you you should be poorer in the future. Who wants to be poor? I want to be richer when I retire. <laughs> Doug, what do you think? I think those are two giant flaws with with this pitch that they have.
1: I would add a third giant flaw too, which is that almost every financial advisor graph is based on the assumption that the S&P 500 or whatever index they invest in is going to continue appreciating at prior rates. Okay, so let's say long, you long term. You mean past performance is no guarantee
0: of future results? <laughs>
1: exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, okay, well, S&P 500, if you take a really long-term chart, including depression, recessions, all that kind of stuff, goes off, depending on your start and end date, at about 8 to 10% a year. People say, hey, that's pretty good. It is pretty good, except that the economy, as in reality, only grows at 25 to 3% a year. And so if you have equity values that are growing at, conservatively three times the rate of the economy that can't happen forever, you know (laughs) The total amount of stuff is only growing at 3% a year and that's 3% a year is really dang good for the economy And so if you think of the equity markets as claims on real stuff the population of real stuff is only getting bigger at 3% a year Equities can't continue growing at eight to twelve percent a year indefinitely. At some oh, point, there has to be some kind of correction because otherwise, because uh, is... otherwise, the compounding gets out of line.
0: Right, and that is really quite fascinating that you brought that up. And you know, years ago, we had talks about things like this when we were studying things like the amount of gold in the world. And I know you did some articles. For I remember my, that article. My, yeah, my, my, my old financial freedom report newsletter that we used to publish. And I think I want to bring that back. But it's a lot of work, and I have a lot, of, lot to do. It is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work. Okay, so <laughs> maybe we won't bring it back, but we're talking about it here. So that is quite interesting. You know what that portends to my thinking is that the growth in the S&P – because it's out of proportion with the GDP, that means that that growth is a result of either number one, financial engineering... Okay. And that means companies using leverage, buybacks, derivatives, a myriad of financial engineering products and techniques. Okay. Or number two, it's a result of too much forward thinking, otherwise known as speculation or gambling. And too much of that is already priced into the market. Uh, What do you
1: think? I think it's the latter. Mm-hmm. and i also think that it ties into what you were saying with the retirement accounts because when the ERISA act and i don't remember off the top of my head what ERISA stands for but it's something In, employee like
0: employee retirement you know income, income savings, savings act yeah or something, something like, like that,
1: that. yeah, yeah. When the ERISA Act went into place because it created IRAs, 401ks, all -hmm. that kind of stuff, what it did was it created tax incentives to plow capital into the market because any individual stock goes up and down based on demand. But the only way that the total market goes up and down is if more capital goes in, is if capital goes in or capital comes out. Total market capitalization is just about a flow of money in or out. And so in order to keep pumping the market up, then you have to keep thinking of ways to get people to plow their money into the equity markets that's the only way the math works. You either have to borrow it and plow it in or get people to save it and plow it in.
0: Mm -hmm. So what you've basically created through tax law and financial engineering is you've created this artificial marketplace. Now, certainly you can argue that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac created an artificial marketplace, and I would agree with you wholeheartedly. You can argue that the subprime mortgage fiasco before it went down the tubes, created an artificial marketplace, and I would agree. You can argue that Sally May, ensuring student loans, created an artificial marketplace, and I would agree completely. So you have all these artificial marketplaces, and it's really hard to tell what's real, because whenever anything's artificial, like Wall Street is compared to Main Street, you have the potential for a very ugly bubble, a very ugly correction, don't you?
1: Absolutely. And kind of bringing it back to real estate, the thing that I like about the real estate value equation is that it's based on prudently leveraging normal inflation. So Mm -hmm. basically, let's just say the real rate of appreciation for a property is zero, and that all of the appreciation for properties are inflation, which you can make a very convincing case for that. Okay, well, if the real appreciation rate for a property is zero, and it only stays consistent with inflation, and I buy it with 80% leverage. Well, now that inflation that happens with zero real appreciation results in a net value gain that is sustainable because inflation's reality, right? Inflation doesn't depend on people deciding they're going to keep funneling money into Morgan Stanley. It's reality. It's never going away. In, In fact, it's more likely than not almost certain to get a lot bigger for a really long time. So I think that's one of the things that's really valuable about the philosophy is that it not only performs better, but it's more fundamentally sound. Because Mm -hmm. at some point, the rate of growth of the equity markets is going to have to revert back toward GDP, because you're just going to run out of stuff for people to buy with all this pretend money.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, (laughs) I couldn't agree more. It's quite interesting. One of the things I brought up in the interview with uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff is, and i you know, I've been saying this for years, but if you look around at the real world versus the Wall Street world, the world of reality versus financial engineering, right? These are two completely different worlds. They do mesh, but they are different. And you look the day before the Great Recession started, usually people think that's when Lehman fell apart. Then the day after, you looked around in the world that the amount of real assets in the world are, were exactly the same. You know, there was the same amount of oil, the same amount of gold, the same amount of silver, the same amount of real estate. All the companies that were in business, except for Lehman Brothers, <laughs> you know, were still selling their widgets. Everything was really the same. It was all still there. All the real assets didn't evaporate. But the only way real assets ever get destroyed is is through war. Otherwise, you know, they're there. And that's the interesting thing to really ponder about economic uh, swings, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, because that's, you just really love pinning on topics that could go on for hours and hours. There's, you know, a traditional macroeconomic view is that war is good for the economy. That's ridiculous. And war is act- yeah, yeah, that is ridiculous. Yeah. Because, you know, w- what, you know, the only thing war does is kill people and break things. That's it. The yeah. only thing war does is destroy stuff.
0: Give them one prop for the war thing, though. If we go with the idea that necessity is the mother of invention... War does force uh, more technological innovation. I think that is actually fair, but that's about the only perk because it, it forces it to market faster, right? Because if something needs to be invented to win a war, there's more urgency than just, hey, let's go out in the marketplace and get rich. So maybe there's a, a slight economic benefit to war, but it's minor and temporary because that thing would have probably ultimately been invented anyway.
1: That's true, because you know, if you think about the... Technological innovation that came out of the World War II era—that's how you got the Saturn rocket that was able to send people to the moon. The technological innovation that came out of the Great Moderation uh, was Facebook and Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think Saturn rockets are way cooler than Facebook and well, Twitter.
0: <laughs> that's certainly true, you know, and that gets into a whole conver- another conversation of when are we going to do something great again like really build something you know <laughs> like a real space program or uh you know a golden gate bridge or yeah i mean i don't know you know that's a whole another discussion we don't have time for but hey doug can you come back I originally i was thinking don't come back tomorrow but come back tomorrow and let's just do part two and let's dive into the savings by decade topic we got to get to uh Lawrence Kutlikoff's uh, the first half of his interview and we'll play the second half tomorrow. So it'll be a perfect fit for everything. Can you do that? It's a deal. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, without further ado, let's get to our guest. but be sure to go to jasonhartman.com and check out our upcoming cruise in, um, uh, November. That's going to be an awesome cruise. And in cruise time, it is urgent that you get registered. So uh, we got to plan this stuff in advance. It's not like one of our typical conferences where you can wait to the last minute. I know a lot of you do that. (laughs) Go to jasonhartman.com. It's right on the front page and get tickets for our upcoming cruise today. And let's get to Lawrence Kutlakov and we will be back with part two of this interview tomorrow, but let's do part one today. Here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Lawrence Kutlikoff back to the show. He is a professor at Boston University, a very renowned economist who has uh, probably done more study and research on our unfunded mandate problem that we will talk about today. Can't wait to dive into that again. And he's also a software entrepreneur, and he's got some great software tools to help planning for all of this stuff. Larry, welcome back. How are you? Great to be with you. Very good.
2: Thanks. and I hope you're doing well, too.
0: It's good to have you back. So last time you were on the show, I think we talked about the unfunded uh, liabilities that the United States is facing in terms of all these entitlements that it has promised to people for the next forever, I guess. But maybe the, the 15-year mark is sort of the primary one to look at. I don't know, you can say. But that total, a lot of people call it the $60 trillion time bomb. You say it's about, uh, I think last time you said it was about $220 trillion, but even that isn't enough, is it? It's even worse than that, right?
2: Yeah. The the most recent number is that our fiscal gap is $239 trillion large. So what is the fiscal gap? So this is putting all the uh, obligations of the government onto the books and also all the assets, including all the future tax receipts onto the books and taking the difference. So you're looking at all the outlays the government is projecting, those are all the obligations, including paying for the government's lunch, defense expenditures, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these expenditures into the future as projected by this Congressional Budget Office. And then you're looking at all the tax receipts that are projected into the future. And also you have the official debt that has to be paid. So you add, you form what we economists call the present value, the value in the present of all those outlays. You subtract the president, you have all the receipts, all the taxes to cover the outlays. You add in the official debt, you end up with 239 trillion. The official debt's about 22 trillion right now. So we're talking about a fiscal gap, a true indebtedness of the country when you put everything on the books. That's 10 times bigger than the number we're talking about officially. So the Congress has been really good at hiding the bacon, hiding the big problems off the books for for decades now, and our kids and. Uh, are going to pay the price. But we're also going to pay the price as well, because our kids are not going to be able to afford to pay us off.
0: Right? Wow, that is that is absolutely astounding. Now, the question is, though, over what time period does the government have? And by the way, I'm guessing you're just talking about the federal government only, because of course, states and municipalities have big problems, too. Especially if you look at Illinois and California, right? Uh, Well, I don't know, California is kind of a mixed bag. I haven't paid that much attention to it lately. But as messed up as that state is, it sort of seems like they're doing okay in some ways, too. I, I don't know. It's another discussion. But that's just the federal government. But over what time frame will we have this $239 trillion, with a T, dollar shortfall?
2: Well, that shortfall is calculated as of today. So the government, the country is, is short basically 10 years of GDP right now. One way we can deal with this problem is to raise all taxes by all federal taxes by about 50%. That's not going to work. Problem. Just <laughs> cut we just had a big tax cut right a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. But we actually need a well we had a modest tax cut. We need a major tax increase, 50% mm-hmm. increase. If we don't do that now, let's say we wait 10 years, well, then we're going to have to have an even bigger increase, maybe it's not 50%, 55%. So, it's not like there's any anything gained by waiting. There's only a bigger burden left to our kids because there's fewer of us around that are now around to pay the the higher taxes. If we wait for 10 years and people that are now, let's say, you know, 80, some of them are going to die, and they will have gotten out from under this problem, scot free, if you like, because they'll die before the taxes are increased. So this is a very much a generational equity, a generational fairness question. How much are we going to burden our kids? So we already have a situation where right today we need a 50% increase that our kids will get hit with for their entire lives okay but we we too my you know people my generation people your generation will uh, have to pay higher taxes the rest of our lives but our kids and all future generations will be stuck with this much higher tax burden that's the best case scenario, Jason. That's the best oh, okay.
0: Case. That's pretty scary. This is this is not uh, positive <laughs> at all. Oh, um, no. but, it, but it does seem realistic. But wouldn't those tax increases suppress economic activity, uh, cause capital flight? certainly we've already seen this with the uh, the offshoring and you know maybe some of the tax plan will bring that back we're certainly seeing people vote with their feet now because of the salt related taxes uh, the state and local taxes uh, you know that are now no longer deductible over ten thousand dollars a year under the new tax plan uh, people are leaving those high tax jurisdictions for more favorable places like uh, where I live Florida
2: well we're getting to a point where you're absolutely right that If we raise taxes too much, we may have all the things you just mentioned, people leaving the country to live in places where there's lower tax burdens, capital not coming in. For example, if we raise the corporate income tax back up, we may see corporations moving back outside of the U.S. Rather than having capital flow in, we'll have capital flow out. So there are limits to what the economy can absorb in terms of higher taxation. So we're getting very close to game over to a point where – The bills are so big that we can't handle it by raising taxes. And the other idea is to, you know, cut spending. So you'd have to cut pretty much every expenditure the federal government makes by about a third. So you'd have to reduce the gas on Air Force, the jet fuel, on Air Force One would have to be cut by 33%. And the Social Security benefits would have to be cut by about that. And Medicare benefits. So we're in extremely scary territory right, right now. We're... With our fiscal but not not right now. I mean, this has been going on for decades. I've been writing about this for my entire professional career, which is a long time.
0: Just help us unpack, though, a little bit, Larry, the time frame. Like when I asked you that question, you said, well, we're $239 trillion underwater right now today, but we don't have to pay that today. We get to pay that over time. So we do get some benefit of what I call <laughs> inflation-induced debt destruction, meaning that some of that will be inflated away, right? But we keep adding to it faster than it'll probably inflate away.
2: This analysis takes into account the fact that you're gonna get some, what economists call seniorage, which is that because of inflation, you're gonna reduce the debt. You know, what do you have to pay back in, in today's dollars? And also, uh, so the analysis takes that into account already. It's really a matter of, you've got a, a cancer growing in your body, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor is a politician, and he says, <laughs> Says, well, you know what? Let's just take a little bit out of it now, and you'll come back in ten years. And you come back in ten years, and it's much bigger than it was. And he said, okay, let's take a little bit more now. Takes even a bigger bite from you. Right. Yeah. Come back ten years later, and you're on death's door because it's going after an organ. Right. So that's the kind of situation we're in. Okay, we that that time. is we have no time left. That, that time is that is that
0: is a mess. We are in a mess. But I, I'm I'm guessing by your prior statement. But you would not be a believer in uh, maybe Arthur Laffer's philosophies or or Ronald Reagan's. You know, I mean, they're obviously connected. You would not be a supply sider or trickle down type of guy, right?
2: Well, I'll tell you what, I went to work for Reagan in the Council of Economic Advisors, but not, I was a senior economist, so I wasn't very high up. I just wanted to have the experience of working at the council.
0: Oh, yeah, that'd be great.
2: And I thought, you know, I've done a lot of work on supply side economics. I developed uh, with Alan Auerbach, who's a professor at Stanford, sorry, uh, at Berkeley, we developed uh, something called the auerbach Koplikov model. It simulates the macroeconomy through time and responses of the economy to and the fiscal system to things like tax cuts. So it's kind of the penultimate supply-side model. So this is kind of why I always got, got hired down at the Council of Economic Advisors and Basically, what Art Laffer uh, and other people were, were claiming, the model doesn't produce or re- reproduce there certain things. You know, if you have sky-high corporate taxes, for example, lowering them at, and having capital flowing from the other from the rest of the world that can help your economy. But just cutting personal taxes actually will not pay for itself. And so we knew that back in 1979, well, 81 when I started working with the Council. So a lot of what Laffer said. It's just not true. Okay. It wasn't true then, not true today. And then we have some other people on the left, like we have the uh, modern monetary theorists today who are MMT, thinking yeah. you can do the same thing, and it's just a different angle of craziness.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I think MMT is just crazy. It's fantasy yep. Yep. land. Yeah, a bunch
2: yeah. of people that want to... Uh, pretend you can uh, consume for free.
0: Yeah, I, I wish it were as easy as MMT. That sounds so easy. <laughs> you know, just just keep running deficits and spending money and you'll be fine. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I'm, just, no, I'm just curious, and I, I won't belabor the point, but I just got to ask you like that sort of that common sense view of it, the layman's view. It seems like if you give people a tax cut, and they have more money in their pocket, won't they spend it? And if they don't spend it, they're going to save it, which is good because that's capital formation for, you know, and that savings obviously works its way into the economy too. I mean, I don't know. That just seems sort of
2: common sense, right? If you give people a tax cut, then the government will have to borrow more money. And then the uh, principal and interest will have to be paid by somebody in the future. So it has to be repaid. So you're giving let's say we give, uh, put on a tax cut for the next 10 years, so we let older people like me pay lower taxes than we'd otherwise pay for the next 10 years. By the end of that 10 year period, some of us will have died. And anyway, well, I've gotten to consume more, but who's gonna have to pay for that tax cut our kids and our grandkids. And right, our...
0: right, right. But the obvious thing is, don't you, when you consume more, don't you increase the GDP, right?
2: You, And that's more taxable. We got the Laffer rights, we got the new the modern monetary theorists, and then we have the old time Keynesians. Mm-hmm. Who believe The more the government spends, or the more we get, the government gets us to spend, mm-hmm. the more uh, the economy is gonna flourish. Well, on that basis, we should cut taxes to zero, have a huge party, and what we'll do is save nothing as a country. We're saving next to nothing as it is mm-hmm. because we're so consumption oriented. Our national saving rate right now is about 4% of national income It used to be 15% in 1950. Yeah. So with very little to save, we, don- we can't really invest that much in our country. And that's why foreigners are investing in our country for us in effect, mm-hmm. yeah. taking the investment opportunities. That's why we're running what's called a current account deficit. So no, the idea that you can uh, consume your way to prosperity is not something that's worked in any economy you know ever
0: I agree and again not to belabor it uh, because I do want to we got I want to talk about maxify and stuff like that but it's not a debate at least in my eyes between saving and spending it's a debate between I mean, look, remember when uh, George W. Bush was president, right? And he sent out that—I mean, not him, but, you know, his administration was running things. He sent out that tax refund, and everybody got like 630 bucks or something, right? And I thought— yeah. Okay, so everybody got a rebate of $600 or whatever it was. You know, they got more money to spend in the economy, so now they're going to go to the shoemaker and the baker and the butcher, and they're going to spend that money, and it's going to trickle through, and then those people will pay taxes, and the pie gets bigger. Here's the logic of
2: that. I think there's some logic. If you're in the middle of a Great Recession like we were, Mm -hmm. at least it was characterized as a Great Recession. I don't think in the end it would have to be that great, but if you have a a situation where everybody gets uh, scared, panicked, Mm-hmm. So I start laying off my employees who are your customers, and you start laying off your employees who are my customers, and everything starts to melt down. Deflationary spiral, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, it's just a economic implosion. Okay. We need something to turn around that psychology, because what happens here is the economy goes from a good equilibrium, a good position, to a bad one. And that's what happened, I think, in the Great Recession. We just got freaked out, because none of the causes of the Great Recession that were alleged to be the causes— were actually true. I have a paper on my website called The Big Con, which talks about the alleged culprits of the Great Recession and and what actually the facts are now that we've looked at them over time. So I think we had a panic. The government comes in and starts handing out checks. Now that had gotten everybody uh, from thinking we're going to have this terrible time to thinking times are good again. That could have gotten me to stop firing my people and you to stop firing your people and could have put on the brakes. But it may also have just freaked us out more. Look how bad things must be if the government's sending us $640 checks. Right, yeah. So what I'm saying is that when, when we understand that uh, the economies can move because of psychology, then we have to be very careful about how we play the psychology game mm-hmm. here change, change the attitudes. And I think a better thing that Bush could have done then well, when Lehman Brothers collapsed was to go to the building. I would have gone to the building the same day, declared bankruptcy, I would have taken the people coming out of the building and I would have grabbed one of them and, well, each one of them as it came out, I would prick them with a pen, a little needle, <laughs> and they had blood. And mm-hmm. nobody died. I would have, as the president, I would have done that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take a pinprick of you and show everybody in the country that you didn't die. Right. That you're actually yeah. gonna be able to work. You're not gonna work for these people, but you'll work for somebody else yeah, next right. week. Right. And then I would have taken a hammer or something hard, a sledgehammer, to the building. Mm -hmm. and Look, this building is still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could have changed the psychology much better than handing out checks. You know what? That is
0: so fascinating that you say that, Larry, because I have long said that the Great Recession or any economic malady, really, you know, during any time we've gone through this, if most people consider the Great Recession to have started the day Lehman Brothers fell, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, I mean, I think it really started about a year before that when the mortgage collapses started, but, but whatever, right? If you went to bed, and then you woke up, and you saw that Lehman Brothers collapsed, that 156 year old company or whatever it was, and then you remember, you looked around before you went to bed, before you knew that Lehman Brothers was collapsing, every asset in the world was there. There was a certain amount of gold, there was a certain amount of oil, there was a certain amount of every resource on earth, copper, you know, whatever you want, right? (laughs) And the next day after the collapse, the resources were the same. They didn't change. They didn't go away. The oil didn't evaporate. The gold didn't disappear. The whole world had the same amount of assets. Now they did, admittedly, change ownership, right? But they were all still there, right? The same amount of real estate existed. But because it's this what Alvin Toffler called a super symbolic economy, and we have this financial engineering that Wall Street does, which is so scary, you know, the credit markets collapsed. And when you have credit based assets, like real estate, especially and the mortgage
2: pool dries up, well, then the price does decline, right? Yeah, nothing real changes. So you're going have the financial system collapse, but it doesn't mean we don't have a financial system we had a the biggest bank in the world the Federal Reserve took over mm-hmm. I mean that's another thing President Bush and uh, President Obama should have said look, you know we don't actually need Wall Street we have we we have the Fed Reserve yeah. and they're going to do all the job that Wall Street did so let's stop getting upset and panicking and go back to work that's mm-hmm. what we do yeah. as Americans yeah. that never yeah. happened so the only reason that we had this You know, you referenced, uh, Jason, the uh, mortgage, you know, mortgages. It turns out that the subprime mortgages were too too small relative to the entire mortgage market, and too few of them actually went into default for this to really explain to have produced a great recession. Mm -hmm. It's just too small a deal.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. When you have a movie like The Big Short come out where it's suggested in that movie that every other mortgage was uh, liar loan, a liar, no a ninja loan,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and everybody decides, oh, for sure, this is the cause. But that's why reading this uh, article, the, the Big Con, maybe we should talk about it mm-hmm. together at some point yeah. on our uh, podcast here, um, it just turns out that when you look at every single explanation of the Great Recession, whether it's the mortgages, the subprimes, the banks being more leveraged, not true, households being more leveraged, they were, but they didn't actually spend the money, they just invested the money. So sense they had assets to cover the, the barring. Uh, rating companies do not uh, systematically overrate. In some cases, I'm sure there were some over, overrating, but not systematically. So every explanation just doesn't hold water. Mm-hmm we have time to look at the facts.
0: I I can't wait to discuss the big con. I'd love to have you back to do that because that sounds fascinating. And I think our ideas about it agree a lot. So Mm -hmm. one last thing, and then let's talk about the solution as to how people plan for what's coming, okay? And you have some software to help them do that. But with $239 trillion looming out there that need to be paid somehow, it seems to me like the only solution is going to be inflation, right? The government is going to have to create money to pay the bills. I've outlined six possible ways that the government could get out of the mess. If it's $60 trillion, if it's $220 trillion, $239 trillion, whatever the number is, we know we have a problem. So the first one is default and just say, look, sorry, you know, austerity is the way it's going to be. That's not going to work. There'd be riots in the street, right? Look at Greece, look at other examples of that around the world. They could raise taxes. We talked about that. Now, my view is when you raise taxes, you suppress economic activity. You know, that's a political debate, maybe more than anything. Number three solution is they could have a yard sale. They could sell the ports to Dubai. They could sell military equipment to Libya. The BLM could sell off land. You know, there are some options there. We do have a lot of resources in the country. Heck, we could sell Alaska back to Russia, right? <laughs> I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying it's, it's available. We could use the American military uh, machine to steal the assets of other countries. That's the history of the world, basically. Or on the good side, we could have some great technological innovation, Okay, some great America-centric discovery or resource, biotech, energy—I don't know, whatever nanotechnology—or the most likely solution: inflate our way out of the mess. It seems to me that you think inflation is coming. Uh, that's what I think.
2: So, if we defaulted on the debt, we'd uh, pick up about 22 trillion out of the 239 trillion. Right. So that's small change, actually.
0: Sure, sure, but it could be an ongoing default you know, say, we're just never going to pay anything. Sorry, you know, government workers, you're out of a job. Social Security, you're never going to get a, you know, whatever. Okay, well,
2: defaulting on all the expenditure obligations. Yeah, that's yeah. like cutting spending. Yeah. But that will lead to, um, as you said, riots in the street. Basically, yeah. you know, old people in particular. It's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> their canes and, uh, and walkers and it's, being up on it's, congressmen. It's politically unacceptable. It's never going to happen. So inflation, the problem with inflation is you can't get much money out of it. Mm-hmm. So the most you could do... I mean, if you ran hyperinflation today and you still maintained uh, social security benefits and real to- dollars you index them, them for inflation as they are, you could at most deflate away the official debt which is twenty two trillion so again you're not going to get well before you get to the point of uh eliminating in real terms what you what you owe on the debt, you will have hyperinflation you'll have people treating money dollars as a hot potato and then You'll have uh, money circulating much rap- more rapid clip, and faster money is like more money, so you'll have prices going up because the money is circulating more rapidly. Yep. So inflation, I think, is going to be the first resort of the, the government, but I don't think it's going to do much except produce a lot of inflation, just like it isn't doing much in Venezuela. The country is still broke. It's not like yeah. they're able to uh, invest in any – You know, the government can raise resources by running a hyperinflation.
0: I agree. And it didn't work in Zimbabwe or Hungary or Weimar Republic or anywhere else. But we have one major advantage: the reserve currency, the biggest military. The U.S. is in admittedly a better position than any of those,
2: right? Just you know, we have the advantage just until we lose it. Now you know, the British pound was the reserve currency until
0: Soros. I guess
2: yeah. <laughs> well, after World War II. That, you know, after World War II, we started. It became the dollar. I don't know whether you would date. The dollar's predominance, uh, preeminence uh, before World War II or not, but anyway, certainly after World War II, it was the dollar. Yeah, and you know, there's nothing that says it can't turn into the yuan, right? Mm-hmm. The Chinese currency, because you know, people will move out of the dollar if the dollar is not trustworthy, and if its real value is depreciated because prices are going up, yeah.
0: it could happen. I agree. I just don't see it happening. Soon. I, it can certainly happen. I mean, there, you know, but when you've got the biggest military and you're the biggest
2: customer of the world. Let me explain uh, one thing though on this front. The U.S. has about 17% of world GDP right now. Mm-hmm. So we might think, be thinking that we had like 30% or 50%, but no, we're actually a small, share, we're, you know, we're a significant but not dominant share of world GDP. Mm-hmm. At the end of the century, just in about 80 years, we're projected to have about 5% of world GDP. So we're going to be to the world in 2100 what uh, Germany is to the world today in terms of our economy size. Yeah, fair enough. So the idea that we can have this hegemony uh, over the world for decades, forever, is not the case. So I think we need to start understanding our place in the world is not what it was in 1950. And that's not going to be uh, even where it is today down the road. This will be continued on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening and happy investing.